I think of this Walt Whitman quote as I am large. I contain multitudes and I love that quote and I always think about that quote when I think about my transness because it's not just this one thing, it's so many things. And that's why I love that word because it feels like there's no one way to define it because it's so many things to so many people and it's so many things to me. It's like the lens in which I view the world and that's what makes it feel so special to claim and reclaim for myself. Welcome to another episode of Advocates in Action, a podcast created by the National Patient Advocate Foundation, a nonprofit that develops initiatives promoting equitable access to affordable quality healthcare through policy action and partnerships. I'm your host, Ashley Freeman, and this podcast season is brought to you in collaboration with the American Board of Internal Medicine. This season will complement their Building Trust Initiative. Our goal is to provide historical context of different disparities and harm, show how it is connected to the inequities that still happen, but also share how changemakers are taking action to ensure that history doesn't continue to repeat itself. I am so excited to chat with you today, Erica. So to open, I would love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Who are you? What do you do? And what are your passions and things that you care about making an impact on this world? Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to join such an exciting podcast. So my name is Erica Concourse. I'm a resident physician in the field of emergency medicine, finishing up my last year. I am super passionate about working to address and identify health disparities, most importantly within the LGBTQ plus community. I am passionate about this as a member of the community, as a trans and non-binary provider, and I have been very fortunate to continue to do that work as a resident physician, and I'm excited about the future and trying to continue to make the healthcare system a more just and equitable place for my community. Give us a little background on your journey that has led to now being a doctor. So I was always interested in people's stories and figuring out how people's stories could inform their health. And a lot of that came to be because I was going through a family health crisis during college. My aunt had breast cancer. And so kind of watching her navigate the healthcare system as a single mom who didn't have the most health literacy, I think that was really striking to me, informative. And I think it was when my aunt passed away, I was just sort of a little bit disillusioned with the healthcare system, just seeing how she was treated. So I took a pause and didn't know what I wanted to do and decided to work as a cook for a year. And <laughs> I was doing a social justice community organizing fellowship in Boston at the same time. So it was a really cool year for me of self-discovery. Being a community organizer, I think, spoke to a lot of the feelings I was having around making change in these big systems. And so learning how to make change as a community organizer, it's all, again, about the story. So talking with people one-on-one, -on -one, getting to understand where they're coming from and using that to build power and momentum to create change. I want to make the healthcare system work better for all folks for all communities. And so that's when I decided to pursue epidemiology and public health. I lived in Michigan for two years and did that. And it was a formative time. It was definitely a time of a lot of personal growth. And I learned a lot of skills that I am so grateful to now have as far as thinking about data, thinking about population level health. 
but I felt very disconnected from what got me into this whole thing, which were people and people's stories. So that's when I decided, you know what, four years later, let's revisit the <laughs> medical school question. And I think a lot of what held me back was a fear that I couldn't make change or that there was too much that needed to be addressed. And also in parallel, sort of coming to terms with my own gender nonconformity and worry around how I would fit into a very, very traditional system, having to overcome that and sort of tell myself, I'm going to show up as I am. I'm not going to make any compromises. And if I get in, great. If I don't, it wasn't meant to be. And it all worked out. I ended up going to medical school and the rest is first. Here I am now. I love when people have these unconventional routes because like you mentioned, along that journey, you learn so much about yourself, but you also pick up tools along the way that someone who maybe did go straight into med school didn't necessarily have that experience, whether it's with data or with the public health foundation. I feel like that gives you that competitive edge, you know, because yeah. there there is a certain level of understanding and skill set in a perspective that you have that's slightly different from your counterparts. Totally. And I also commend you for still pursuing medicine and like you said, fearing, can I truly be myself in this mm -hmm. space that is historically not built for people like myself? Mm -hmm. And so how did you really overcome that to now you're now on the other side almost <laughs> yeah. finished with residency so how has that journey been so much has changed even in the last 10 years I would say the four-year span that I took a hiatus on the pursuit of medical school even in that short period of time I feel like medical education has become much more open to different folks breaking down the barriers of who gets to be a healthcare provider, who gets to be in the ivory tower, so to speak. A lot of it was taking time away and sort of seeing through social media or through friends of friends who were actually getting into medical school or getting interviews and saying, okay, there is room for bodies like mine, folks like mine, folks like me. Thinking in my heart of hearts, this is the path that will help me achieve that, but knowing that there multitude of other paths that would allow me to serve my community and create the change I wanted. So I think it was like that acknowledgement and that recognition that there is no one way and it was going to be okay regardless of what happened. I think emotional and personal growth to say it's okay. I'm not afraid of the failure. I'm not afraid of the rejection. Whereas I think for me, I wasn't quite ready to face that coming right out the gate. So I needed to get to a place where I was unapologetically who I was versus trying to hide or compromise that. And it just took, I think, time, space, perspective to reach that place. And a lack of fear, honestly, knowing that regardless of what happened, I had my community and it was all going to be okay no matter what. I love that. So did you share publicly about being transgender and non-binary before you applied to med school or like when, where does mm. that fit in the timeline and what inspired that decision? A lot of my decision to publicly come out as trans and non-binary, it all sort of happened naturally in the last 10 years. Understanding of what being a trans person is has expanded and grown and become more 
fluid. And for me growing up, I think, and coming to terms with being queer and then coming to terms with my gender nonconformity, I felt like there was a very traditional understanding of what being transgender was. And that was like a linear process of you are this one thing and then you become this other thing. And then that process is over, complete. I have transitioned, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And so that narrative, I think, was pretty common and it's still pretty common as far as like how the world understands what being transgender is but I think in just meeting more people and having queerness expanded upon in our media and our social media I connecting with other folks whose identities I felt more aligned with and saying what words do I feel describe me? And when I think about the word transgender, I think of it as an umbrella term for someone whose understanding of themselves as far as their gender identity does not feel aligned with that gender that they were assigned with at birth. And when you think of it in that broad term, as I do, I was like, yeah, that feels right. That does mm -hmm. feel right for me. I think there was a lot of fear initially around claiming that word because I felt like that would and people would expect certain things of me or question certain things of me. Uh, why aren't you taking hormones or why aren't you pursuing X, Y, and Z surgical interventions or why are you using these pronouns or why are you using this name? Because that's how most folks think of transgender mm -hmm. people as people who were, quote unquote, born in the wrong body and mm -hmm. start out as one thing and end as another and that's it. But I think taking that and blowing it up and putting it on its head and saying there are multiple ways to be this one thing and this feels right for me. I think of this Walt Whitman quote because I'm from Jersey and so is Walt Whitman. It's I am large. I contain multitudes and I love that quote and I always think mm -hmm. about that quote when I think about my transness because it's not just this one thing. It's so many things and that's why I love that word because it feels like there's no one way to define it because it's so many things to so many people and it's so many things to me it's like the lens in which I view the world and that's what makes it feel so special to claim and reclaim for myself it sort of just happened naturally when I felt like okay this is an identity that I feel aligned with trans day of visibility where I decided to just post myself on my Instagram and say hey this is what a trans person can look like and that doesn't mean that I'm doing x y and z this is just my identity this is who I am and I'm visible as a trans person and that felt really impactful I think it was before I entered residency but during medical school it wasn't something where I felt the need to quote-unquote come out to my friends or colleagues or anything it just felt like something that I had to tell myself and that was enough there's so much good stuff there <laughs> <laughs> there's always this concept of feeling like enough right mm -hmm. or having to fit in whatever box other people create for certain terms and how they mm -hmm. view certain things and you're just like no this is who I am totally. this is what I'm doing this is my journey and yep. this is what feels good and yep, yep. I just feel like if we all just respected each other's decisions and realized hey that person's decisions actually don't impact my life. Not at so all. So I should mind my business. <laughs> literally just mind my business. That's literally it. But it's so hard. I feel people take it so personally or feel that it somehow relates to them and has some impact on their lived experience that I think it's hard for people to just accept that it's okay that we all think 
differently and have different understandings of what things mean and that's okay. And it's such a fine line or tension between wanting my healthcare providers to know my identity so they respect it and validate it, but also comes with questions that may or may not be problematic. And you have a unique perspective because, I mean, we're all patients, right? Mm -hmm. But you're a patient with a very unique journey. Yeah as well as a provider. And so Mm -hmm. that means that you've seen this healthcare system from so many different perspectives. So what Mm -hmm. actions have you personally taken to make the medical community more aware and accepting Mm -hmm. of the LGBTQ plus experience? I have always tried my best to use my community organizing background in trying to make change. So start by building relationships. So in medical school, it was all about working with my peers and starting from a foundation of me as a person. And I feel like that will help foster your buy-in on this education. So starting there and then having people get a little bit more insight into my identity and then sort of saying, oh, okay, I actually do know a trans person and this is who they are. This is what they value. Just That awareness in the next generation of healthcare providers, I think, was huge because so many healthcare providers would say, I've never met a trans person, I've never met a gender conforming person. But to even have that identity be visible in medical training, I think, was really important to me. And then using those relationships to create change in the medical education system. So in med school, I helped create a standardized patient encounter where we got trans and gender nonconforming standardized patients and created a couple of cases where we had to practice asking these patients what organs they had, their pronouns, their identity, etc., to facilitate the medical encounter. It took three-ish years prior to just getting buy-in from my colleagues, my peers, and then the higher-ups to make that happen. But that was huge, and I was really proud of that because I think it was the first time that any of these concepts were really introduced, at least at my medical school. I think encounter like that or an educational experience like that is super valuable and I think should be standardized across the board. And so just having the experience of planning that with a lot of great help from my colleagues from start to finish was super impactful. Even still, I have people reaching back out to me who are now residents saying I still think about those moments and the learning I got on that, which is super meaningful to me. When people respect you and respect what you stand for, they're actually going to have that buy-in to listen and to be willing to fail and feel a little silly and really try because they, I cared about it. And they respected and cared about me. And so they were willing to do something that maybe they wouldn't have just if it was an offered module online, they probably wouldn't have just taken the time out of their day to do. So that was a huge part of what I got to do in medical school. And in residency, I think it's always hard because you're kind of at the bottom of the hierarchy as a trainee. But I still feel like the same principles apply where it was all about gaining the respect and honestly love of my cohort to have the desire to learn and fail and ask questions because they felt like it was a safe place. The new epic update that we had at my healthcare institution included a sexual orientation and gender identity form, which was, I think, part of healthy people's new like requirements for hospitals to get that information. And so educating my colleagues on how to use that form was great. I feel like 
people were really receptive to trying those things out, asking questions, because then that data is going to be utilized to understand disparities that in the future, I hope can help to create some change. And again, that's all about me even like sharing my story. Like, hey, if someone asked me that in the ER, that would be huge. That would change my entire framework because trans and gender nonconforming people don't seek care as frequently, are already afraid in seeking care. And so even just having those questions asked and I hesitate to say culturally competent because I don't know if we ever reach competency, but culturally humble, I like a little bit better way. I feel like it kind of starts to break down those barriers that trans and gender nonconforming people specifically have when seeking care. And then working with my program leadership to get pronoun badges across the hospital for all GME trainees was really exciting. I was really scared, honestly, but my leadership had my back and they took it to the higher ups and they got it done. I was really excited because I had made my own uh, on Etsy and I would get a bunch of comments on it, but I was the only one wearing it. And I feel that's always what it is, right? It's always the onus is always on the minority group to like bring these issues up Mm -hmm. and it gets exhausting. And so it means a lot to see cis people have their pronouns out. It normalizes it for trans and gender conforming folks. So seeing that even in the last year and a half across the hospital, it really warms my heart. Hearing stories about how patients may not feel so excited about that or have questions and maybe a little bit of anger, but then how my cis colleagues respond in my ship has been really rewarding. So those are just some small little things I've been able to do, some educational things that I've been able to do through our Emergency Medicine Residency Association, EMRA. There's a module I did that is available on their website, which is really exciting for all EM residents through one of my colleagues, Sandra Coker, who's amazing, hooked me up with that opportunity. So shout out to her. Looking for these little ways to educate, inform, build community. They've been really meaningful. And I'm looking forward to more time and more energy after residency to make these moments feel a little bit more long-lasting, more impactful. And I think it's possible. I'm seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. It's going to happen. Yes, for sure. First of all, you said these small things. These are not small things. These are huge <laughs> things. They are and huge things. I feel are. like you're you're leaving like your sprinkles everywhere you go <laughs> with these changes and that will outlast you because once Mm -hmm. you're gone from your location today, they're still going to have pronouns on Mm -hmm. their name tags because you did that. And a piece of you and your impact is always living in that space. I think that's something you should definitely be proud of, which you clearly are. And for people who don't understand the importance behind pronouns and why Mm -hmm. that was so important for you, like you said, for not only you to wear your pronouns, but -hmm. for all of your cisgender colleagues as well, just share with us, you know, how do pronouns contribute to Mm -hmm. and inform the sense of community and identity? and respect, honestly. I mean, there's some really good data out there that shows that when providers utilize the pronouns that a patient utilizes, the trust is elevated, the perceived rapport is elevated between patient and provider. So when you're a patient and you're going and already afraid that someone's going to misgender you or there's going to be a snide comment or you're going to be dead named, which is when someone refers to you by your birth name and you utilize a different name, You're already so anxious and nervous to have that validating experience, I think, really helps shape the entire encounter and increase the trust that trans and gender people have in the system as a whole. So you're really, as the provider, 
this like representative for this system that for better or worse is problematic and has harmed a lot of bodies. And so to take every and any opportunity you can to try to break down those historical injustices in a small way, you're just validating someone and you're just respecting what they call themselves. A patient's name on their thing said, Jonathan. And then they said, I go by John and you continue to call them Jonathan. You're like, no, I'm not going to call you that. I'm actually just going to call you Jonathan. I refuse to call you John. It's like, why? Literally, it makes no sense. But then you put it back in the pronoun context and people have such a hard time with it. It seems so silly when you frame it in any other way. So for me, it's just demonstrating your respect for your patient and meeting them where they're at, which I think it seems so basic. But for so many of us, we don't get that. And I think it sets up the entire encounter in a much better way than when there's not even that conversation or opportunity. Pronouns are just assumed. And then it feels like the onus is on the patient to then correct. And then you're worried about creating awkwardness or what harms may come. Could you get kicked out of the provider's office? In some states, there's no protections against that. And so it is honestly like a revolutionary to literally just someone their pronouns and respect someone's pronouns. It is absolutely that important. To me, it just sounds like being seen and heard mm-hmm. for who you are. And like you said, Jonathan versus John, everyone gets it. Sounds right. so simple. It sounds so simple, but... Keep that same energy. <laughs> exactly. And you mentioned some states not having certain protections and more times than not, non-binary people decide to even seek medical care but not Mm -hmm. feeling like it's a safe space. So for people who maybe aren't as educated, can you share a little bit about that history? If you think about the history of being a trans or gender non-conforming person in capital M medicine, I mean, even in 2013 was when gender identity disorder became gender dysphoria. We're talking about 10 years ago, gender identity disorder was still listed in the DSM as a disorder, right? There is the pathologicalization of trans and gender nonconforming bodies in most states. And this can even be provider dependent in order to even access gender affirming care. You need letters from psychiatrists saying that you've lived as X gender for a certain amount of time before you're even allowed to access gender affirming care, things like surgeries, hormones, etc. Because providers have this fear that there's going to be a backlash on them if, for example, someone decides to then quote unquote detransition. And so there's a lot of barriers for folks accessing care that have been created legally or just within specific healthcare institutions around accessing gender affirming care to quote unquote protect against I don't even know what to be honest with you because when you think about what gender affirming care is cis people do it all the time (laughs) so if someone wants a breast augmentation and they're a cis woman no one makes them go to a therapist pay x amount of money get a letter signed saying that is in alignment with their gender identity but for Mm. trans and gender non-conforming people those hurdles still exist and there aren't protections around that that doesn't even begin to scrape the surface around the issues that are causing the healthcare disparities that trans and gender people face because it's employment, it's housing, it's gun violence, it's racism, it's all of the above impacting trans and gender nonconforming people 
at a disproportionate level. So I think there's a lot of reason that trans and gender nonconforming people have fear right now. There are folks who are getting forcibly detransitioned and who don't necessarily have the resources to just pick up and move to a more accepting state. So you've got kids who know who they are, who are at risk for harming themselves, and you're having the government come in and tell them you aren't who you know you are, and we're going to just tell you. And that's going against the accepted medical understanding of what the correct treatment for these kids are. So I think it's really hard when you have the medical system saying, this is right, this is standard of care, and then you have the government coming in and saying, well, we're not letting you access the agreed upon medical therapies. It's challenging. Even as someone who was not directly impacted, you still feel that violence. You still feel that arm. And it becomes really frustrating for a lot of us who don't know what to do and are also just ourselves trying to survive. So it's heavy. Yeah. Not to get too heavy, but it is heavy. You know, it now really it's, is. It's heavy, but it's real, you know, and it ties to my next question. If you had the ability to create your own version of an ideal world where <laughs> LGBTQ plus people can live and work and get medical care and not mm -hmm. just survive, but also thrive in all states mm -hmm. in all geographical areas, mm -hmm. What would that world look like? Oh you know, what changes would need to be implemented to achieve it? I want to live in this world. <laughs> I want to live in this world forever. I want to think about this world forever. I imagine a world where trans people don't wake up every day fearing for their lives. And that feels like the basis of this, right? It feels like trans people don't have to fear that their transness will cause them harm. I imagine a world where no one has to prove themselves to the healthcare system to access the care that they want. No one has to fit into a box to make healthcare providers feel comfortable. We respect people's bodily autonomy and respect that people can make their healthcare decisions. And we remove the paternalism from medicine and let people be who they are and help facilitate that as healthcare provider. Imagine a world where gender affirming care for trans people is covered by insurance. And I know that the laws are out there that provide those protections, but I imagine a world where trans people have insurance and are given employment opportunities and are celebrated for who they are. You said thrive, not just survive. And I think about that so often. I imagine a world where there's no fear and no one has to hide. They just are who they are. And it doesn't even have to be a conversation. It just is what it is. And that's enough. I imagine a world where people don't have to come out anymore as trans. They just are who they are. That's the world yeah. I imagine. And I imagine a world where we can build community with one another and find joy. And the center of our trans community isn't around constantly having to fight for our rights, but actually just celebrating ourselves and finding that joy with ourselves. Because I find so often in building community and finding community, we're having to center our conversations around the latest violence or the latest injustice. And I revel in the opportunities where I get to be in community and just dance and find joy and, and not worry about who's looking. So that's the world I imagine far away, but it's possible. It's possible. Yes, it is possible. As you were talking about it, me as an African-American woman in the United States, I was like, oh, I wish there was a place like that for Black people. I wish there was a world for us like that, too. So I understand that many of us from marginalized communities can relate. 
but this episode specifically is dedicated to the LGBTQ plus community. So thank you so much for sharing. And as we wrap up, what are some action items or things that people can walk away with from this episode that they can apply or change in their own personal lives? There are a lot of simple things that you can do. You don't have to be a healthcare provider. You don't have to be someone who's savvy in politics or social justice movements. It's as simple as having conversations, calling out transphobia when you hear because it is rampant in our society and it's okay if it feels uncomfortable and you don't have to know everything. You don't have to be an expert to just ask, why did you say that? And having people have to explain themselves. I think those little moments where you're speaking out against microaggressions, I think that goes a long way. And so I call upon the cis allies here to try to find those small ways of standing for trans lives because we are desperate needing you in this fight. We cannot do it alone. The issues are too big right now. So we are asking and hoping that you will join us. Contact your local legislator, your senator, see what's going on, look into how affirming or not affirming is your healthcare provider and maybe take an opportunity as a cis person to say, hey, I noticed on your intake form you didn't have a line there for pronouns. I think that could be useful. And even just starting that conversation with your own healthcare provider as a cis person, I think can be really impactful. So in your relationships that you already have, just trying to find little ways where you can bark these conversations. I really do believe that it's in those little one-on-one interactions that we're going to create the change we want to see. I hope that I've inspired you to go out there and fight with us because we need you. I'm Ashley Freeman, and thanks for listening to this episode of Advocates in Action. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, review, and share this podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. We enjoy connecting with our listeners, so please visit our website at npaf.org podcast for show notes, resources, and ways to engage with us on social media. Thanks for listening.